I think you're going to be in for a very good film, which I strongly recommend. Professor Wallace chose it, but for the time being, I'm here for a one-night stand. So I understand that the last lecture you heard from Professor Wallace was on the Four Noble Truths and what's coming next week when Professor Wallace returns from uh, a seminar she's participating in at Oxford University will be on Buddhist monasticism. So considering these two, how this lecture today is juxtaposed by what comes before and after, I thought it might be useful to speak about education in the traditional Buddhist context. But I'd like to relate these very strongly to the lecture you've heard last Thursday and the one you'll hear a week from today. So focusing on education. So I thought maybe I would give a title to the lecture I'm giving you today, and it is Education and the Pursuit of Happiness. Now, most of what the comments that I'll make today will be pertaining directly to this course, an intro to Buddhism. But I live in the 21st century, as we all do, so I'd like to relate this to where we're living now. So in the Four Noble Truths, you hear a lot about suffering, the reality of suffering, the source of suffering, what causes suffering, the possibility of being free of suffering, and then finally, the way to get there. How do you find such freedom? So as Professor Wallace probably mentioned to you, this model, which is the framework, the structure, and the foundation of all of the Buddhist teachings and all the Buddhist teachings himself and all of Buddhist tradition ever since then, is very clearly a therapeutic model. It's like going to a doctor. You have symptoms. You don't go to a doctor because you're so happy and healthy. You go there usually because you don't feel so good. So first of all, what are the symptoms? Reality of suffering. It's the doctor's job, maybe in collaboration with you, to figure out why are you suffering. If you're in good luck, the doctor will give you a good prognosis say you can overcome the suffering, you can be free, and then he or she will tell you what you need to do. So it's a very, it's not a religious agenda. It's an agenda that we all relate to because we are all prone to suffering. For whatever suffering we're experiencing, it stands to reason that there must be some reason for it. It's not just chaos or for no reason whatsoever. And then we raise the question, if we are suffering in any way, physically, psychologically, we don't like it, and so we might wonder, is it possible to be free? And if that is held out as a possibility, then the one lingering question, the overwhelmingly most important question is, what do we need to do? What's the way to such freedom? So I'd like to simply emphasize the point that this is not a religious agenda. That is, many Buddhists certainly are religious, but the framework here is not religious at all. I would just say it's ex existential. And that is, we as sentient beings, we as this particular species of human beings, we don't want to suffer. We all want to be free of it, and if there's some way to be free of it, we're already interested, right? So you don't need to pers be persuaded to be interested in the fundamental issues. Now, clearly, the Buddha's diagnosis or analysis of these four is unique to Buddhism. But the questions being raised here, I think, must be relevant to all of us, and not only human beings, animals and so forth. They also suffer. There are reasons for their suffering and so on. So one might wonder, why all the emphasis on suffering? If we go to our Declaration of Independence for this country came out in 1776, written primarily by Thomas Jefferson, we see that the founders of our country told us that we have inalienable rights bestowed upon us by the Creator for life, liberty, and the pursuit of happiness. I got curious about that just this afternoon. Life, liberty, okay, we'll kind of gloss over that for the time being, but the pursuit of happiness. This clearly is germane to the Four Noble Truths. If you want to be free of suffering, that has to do also with the flip side of the coin, you want to be free of suffering, but you'd like to have also not just be bored to death, but to find some happiness. So I got curious, what, what was Thomas Jefferson referring to when he said the pursuit of happiness? Was he talking about an emotion, a feeling? What was he talking about? So I checked it out, and it's pretty straightforward. Back in 1776, when they spoke of the pursuit of happiness, they were really referring to three things. And again, I think this is irrelevant. You decide. But I think it's as relevant to us now in 2017 as it was 1776. The pursuit of happiness, what are we talking about here? And it's pursuit of three things. As they understood it, the, the, the authors of the Declaration of Independence refers to three things. First of all, prosperity. We, have, we are guaranteed the right, the God-given right, to pursue prosperity. And I think we would all agree it's, it's, more, it's more agreeable to be, to be prosperous than to be impoverished. So that sounds good. That's the first part, though. It's sheer prosperity. You have the stuff you need. And then secondly, thriving. Thriving. 
I thought about that, so here's an interpretation. Not a very deep one, but I think it's probably what they're getting at, especially when we see what the third point is. The second one's thriving. If somebody asks you how you're doing, and you say, I'm thriving, to me that implies you're probably in good health. If you're seriously ill, in any way, psychologically, you know, you're bipolar, you're schizophrenic, and so forth, you wouldn't say, yes, I'm schizophrenic, but I'm thriving. Nobody would say that, right? So thriving has to do with your health, physical health, psychological health, right? And so if we ask yourself, if we, any of us ask ourselves right now, if you had to choose between either being wonderfully prosperous, I mean, flat out filthy rich, but in terrible health, or in wonderful health, but only a very modest financial means, would anybody in his right mind choose to be filthy rich but terribly ill? It'd be crazy. So I won't even ask, right? So two out of three. Does it get interesting? So prosperity, that's good. There's nothing wrong with being prosperous. Although I have to say, here's a little footnote, it does concern me when I read in the news just recently that the top eight wealthiest people on the, on the planet own as much as the poor 3.5 billion people. There's something, I think, morally wrong with that. But moving right along. Prosperity, thriving. The third one's the most interesting to my mind because I think we're going from outer to inner. Prosperity is just how much money do you have? What are your assets? What's your property? Straightforward. Thriving in terms of your physical and psychological health, a bit subtler. Money can't buy it. Steve Jobs died of pancreatic cancer. It didn't matter whether they had billions or only $5 in the bank. If you're dying of pancreatic cancer, how much wealth you have is kind of irrelevant. Right? Clear. But the third one, is, to my mind, is the most interesting. It's going right to the nucleus of our very existence here. Health is pretty darn close. But the third one, to my mind, really catches my attention. It's called well-being. Well-being. Prosperity, thriving, and well-being. What's he referring to? Well-being is a nice word. I really like it a lot in English. How are you? How is your being? How is your presence in the world? How are you? And if you say, I am well, I'm experiencing well-being, that sounds really good to me. Sounds really good. Something to aspire for, something to pursue. Well-being. Now, when we look in Greek antiquity, I'm going to be going around the map a little bit, back to Plato, to Socrates, Aristotle, but we're not going to veer too, too long and for very, in very depth outside of Buddhism because this is an intro to Buddhism class. But the ancient Greeks drew a distinction that I think we've largely forgotten, and it's enormously useful. It's a distinction between two types of well-being. One is called eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. No, let's start with the more, more superficial one. Let's go from the shallow to the deep. One is called hedonia. Hedonia. You can probably spell it. Hedonia. As in hedonism. Straightforward. I'm going to define hedonia here in a way that I think is quite sensible. It's not the only way to define it, but I find it very useful. Hedonia. Any type of happiness, any kind of pleasure, well-being, joy we experience that arises in response to something good happening to us. Some kind of a pleasant stimulus. Having a really nice relationship with another person. Maybe enjoying going to a fine university. Maybe other types of good fortune. All kinds of sensual, intellectual, environmental, psychological. But things happening to you that give rise to a sense of happiness or well-being. They're stimulus-driven types of pleasure. It's a wide range, very, very wide range. Right? And people tend to pursue such hedonic pleasure or hedonia with strategies. Strategies such as the pursuit of three things. Another triad. You ready? See whether this rings a bell. Rings a bell in your own lives, because that's what I'm interested in. And that is pursuit of wealth. That's familiar. Pursuit of power, influence. Pursuit of prestige, high status, notoriety, reputation. With any one of these three as instruments, you may very well be able to get a good deal of hedonia. A lot of money can buy you a lot of good meals, automobiles, homes, and so forth. As one person said, if you think money can't buy happiness, you don't know where to shop. So there is, clearly, you can get a lot of happiness with money. But there are some things money can't buy that you can get if you have power, influence. You may not have a lot of money, but if you have power, that can be quite thrilling, and you get people to do what you want. 
And there's some things that you can't get with either money or power, and that's prestige, high-standing, reputation, notoriety. So these are three instruments, the pursuit of wealth, power, prestige, high status. And I've seen this in literature, East and West, ancient and modern. These are not something I just dreamed up. That can give rise to hedonia. That can give you the kind of pleasure that you can seek from the world. You get it. The more you get, less somebody else has. So the eight people who own as much as the 3.5 billion people who are poorest on the planet, they have a lot, and as a result of their having a lot, a lot of other people have less. That's the way it is. These are finite things. Power, everybody can't have the same amount of power. If somebody has more, somebody else has less. Reputation, if one someone is extremely famous, somebody else is less so. If somebody has high status, somebody else has less. So these are areas for competition. Wealth, power, prestige. If I've got more, somebody else has less. If one country has more, another country has less. So they're by nature competitive, where there's competition, where especially where there's fierce inequality, then you have an unstable economy, unstable civilization, because people don't like it. The people on the bottom are going to revolt sooner or later. This is why gross inequalities of wealth never make for a stable civilization. That's been proven many, many times throughout history. So hedonia, we're familiar with it. Any type of pleasure that comes up in response to something nice happening to you, right? So we all know about that. But the Greeks, Socrates, Plato, Aristotle, but we find also the Buddha and Zhuangzi and other people representing wisdom traditions east and west, they identified another type of well-being. We haven't strayed far from the Declaration of Independence here. Another type of well-being, which the Greeks called eudaimonia. It's E-U-D-A-I, monia, M-O-N-I-A, eudaimonia. Eudaimonia. You means good, as in euphoric. You know, euphoric, something good. And daimonia means your spirit, a good spirit. That's just the etymology. What eudaimonia really is, is a sense of well-being that arises that is not something you get from the world, but something you bring to the world, a type of well-being that arises, that you experience, that's not contingent upon pleasant things happening to you. Being lucky, having good fortune. Even the pleasure of taking certain drugs, illegal drugs, legal drugs, that's also hedonia. It's stimulus-driven. The drug wears off. But eudaimonia is not drug-induced. It's not induced by power, prestige, or wealth. It's not generated or does not rely upon nice things happening to you, which is a good thing when we consider how little control we have over other people's behavior, the economy, the environment, and so forth. If we vest all of our interests in the pursuit of hedonia, you may as well get used to being anxious and maybe depressed. Because every kind of pleasure you ever get from the world, you will lose, without exception. That's just a truth. That's not a religious truth, a Buddhist truth. If it's not true, then you tell me, give me an example that's contrary. Any kind of pleasure you get from the world, you will lose it. Whatever goes up, goes down. And there's no guarantee you'll get it in the first place. But eudaimonia is something different. We see this in Socrates, Plato, Aristotle. We find it in the Buddha, where it's called samyaksuka, authentic well-being, or satsuka, sublime well-being. This is something that comes from within. It's not something we get from the world, but something we bring to the world. And it starts at a very prosaic level. It's not something so esoteric or abstract that it's like a religious belief or something like that. Let's take a very simple example that anybody can understand, and certainly college students could understand, but a five-year-old could understand. There's the pleasure of receiving a gift. Somebody gives you something you like, right? And you said, oh, how did you think about this? I, this is something I really, really wanted, and your, your face lights up. You said, wow, this is very cool. Thank you so much, you know? The joy you're experiencing there, that you've just gotten this gift that you really value and is given in a very nice spirit of friendship or what have you, that's hedonia. Something nice happened to you, you light up. You're very happy with that. So that's nice. And then a week goes by, maybe even five minutes goes by, and that kind of spike of happiness, oh, look what I got. It subsides. Right? And then there's the sense of well-being that arises when you give something, when you give a lot of thought to something, and it's, it's done with a sense, simply a sense of caring, of affection, of warmth, of kindness, and you give something to another person, a stranger, a loved one, a family member, a, a partner, and you give it to them because you really like to make them happy. And you give it to them, and you see them light up. You see how happy they are, that you chose well. 
and you chose it and you gave it in such a nice way, they really appreciate it. They know there's no strings attached. It's not a maneuver. It's not a strategy. They don't, don't, they don't have an angle. You sense that. And so when you give something like that and you see what satisfaction it brings to the other person, then you experience a joy that's not from getting something, but from giving something. Straightforward. And you can enjoy that a week later when you think of how you made this person happy, the motivation that went into it, and you can think about it a year later, and it can still give you happiness. Isn't that true? Now, that's not competitive, right? And that is, if I should give you something and another person gives you something, this is not competitive at all. Whereas the hedonia is always by nature competitive. So it starts there. If we go now back to the Buddhist tradition, this is again an intro to Buddhism. The Buddha spoke of this first level as a level pertaining to ethics. If you got a fairly detailed introduction to the Four Noble Truths, you know the fourth one, the path to the freedom from suffering, starts with ethics, right? Ethical behavior. Ethical behavior is simple in Buddhism. The core is simple. The elaborations can be very, very complex. But the core of Buddhist ethics, as you probably heard already, and it's good remembering if you're interested in this class, and that is this nonviolence. It starts with nonviolence. Nonviolence physically to other people, to animals, to the environment. There's your bottom line. Nonviolence, right? But it's not just let's be inoffensive. Let's, not be, let's just not be violent. That's a really good start. But it's also where we have the opportunity to do some good in the world. To help in some way, help with the environment, help other people, help animals, help the political condition in this country, and so forth. Help the poor, help the needy, and so forth. Helping out where we can in those two, with those two simple principles, and that's all there is basically to Buddhist ethic. We just boiled it down to its essence. Nonviolence, above all, you know, try not to harm. But secondly, when you can do some good for the world, then absolutely that's the meaning of life. And so if you lead a life oriented around these principles, of really doing your best from day to day to avoid inflicting injury, that is nonviolence, and trying to live a benevolent life, then from that alone you'll find, and people who have done it know this is true, there's a sense of satisfaction, a sense of well-being, that your life is good. Your presence here in the world is something good. You didn't get that from the world, it's something you brought to the world. So it's a type of samyaksukha, or authentic well-being, that arises from leading an ethical and benevolent way of life. The Buddha called it the joy of having a clear conscience. There's something to that. A sense of having done something really rotten can nag and nag and nag and go on for decades, actually. So there's one level. There's a deeper level, the Buddhist books. And let's just linger with the Buddhism for a while. Intro to Buddhism, after all. There's a deeper level, though, because the first one is entirely relational to other people, animals, the environment, and so forth. But can you, if you're sitting alone in your room, not explicitly engaging with other people, the environment, and so forth, if you're sitting alone in your room, sitting quietly in your chambers, can you experience any sense of well-being when you're not subjecting yourself to any pleasant stimuli? No music, no text messages, no video games, no nothing, no video screen, no books, no nothing. Is it possible to be sitting quietly in a room with no stimulation going on and experience any sense of well-being? In other words, can it entirely come from within, even without doing anything, doing something good, just sitting there? Is it possible to just sit there and experience a sense of well-being? Well, the sages of the past, I'm not speaking of one religion versus another, I speak of wisdom tradition, which cuts across these borders of religion, philosophy, and science, Say, yeah, that's possible. Doesn't come naturally. In fact, a scientific study was done just a couple of years ago. I remember it very vividly. I wasn't there, but I read about it. And it was taking a group of, I think it was American men and women, middle-aged, whatever, and they were put in a room for 15 minutes by themselves with nothing there, a chair, no stimulation at all. But it wasn't cold, it wasn't hot, they weren't hungry, they weren't thirsty. They're just sitting in a room by themselves, right? with nothing going on, for 15 minutes. But there was one thing they could do if they chose. And that was they had a little gizmo to the right of them, or left, whatever. They could give themselves an electric shock, like sticking your finger in a socket. Those are your only two options. You either just sit there, not a lethal shock, but, you know, like, the kind of shock you don't like, you know? Like, Those are your two choices. 
15 minutes. You can either just sit there for a while or you can give, start giving yourself shocks. Any idea what happened? Well, out of the men, because they had equal, equal groups of men and women, this news is going to be really good for the women, not so good for the men. Two-thirds of the men started shocking themselves. <laughs> One of them was the outlier, shocked himself 180 times in 15 minutes. Yeah. The women, one out of four. To my mind, that just tells me women are generically more sane than men. It shows how unbearable sitting in a room with no stimulation can be. But maybe I just misspoke. There was stimulation. Because you're not just sitting in a vacuum. You're sitting there, and your nearest companion is your mind. Your thoughts, your memories, your emotions. And two-thirds of the men found it was more pleasant to shock themselves rather than be alone with their minds with no anesthesia, no intermediary. Better to get their minds off their minds, even if it was in a very unpleasant way. You'll hear in the next lecture from Professor Wallace about monastic education. It's everything to do about cultivating the mind. On the basis of ethics. No ethics? Forget it. you got nothing. But on the basis of ethics, then it's all about what's called bhavana, which we lamely translate as meditation in English. But the term bhavana in Sanskrit means cultivation. That's cultivating a field. And so the monks, the nuns, eventually there were nuns, and there have been thousands, tens of thousands, hundreds of thousands since then, over the last 2,500 years. Their primary reason for taking the step to become monastics and receive monastic training is, first of all, in, indeed, establish ethics. But on that basis, it's bhavana, cultivating the mind so the mind itself can be turned into your best friend. One American author, she lives up in San Francisco, made an interesting comment. She said, my mind is like a bad neighborhood. I try not to go there alone. She's referring to an untrained mind where it's unbearable to sit for 15 minutes in a room with your closest companion being your mind and the mind is mugging you. If you haven't experienced that, you will. It's only a matter of time before on occasion you may find your own mind unbearable. And you'd rather be shocked than to have to be there with no medication, no mediation, no anesthesia between you and your mind. So a deeper level of eudaimonia or authentic well-being comes from cultivating the mind, such that when you're alone in solitude, your mind itself is a wellspring of well-being. There's a friend of mine, been a monk for many, many years now, decades. Several years back, he went off into solitude in a little cabin up in the Himalayas. He's a Western monk. And for nine months, he was in total solitude. Now, he's a very well-trained monk, very knowledgeable, but well-trained. And he came out of that, and he was asked, what was it like being in total solitude for nine months? And he said, and I quote him, it was like a river of gold. Like a river of gold. Now, convicts who've committed very serious crimes, who are incarcerated, if they misbehave in the prison, in our country, where we're not yet legalizing torture, again, about the worst thing that can happen to you in a prison is solitary confinement, right? Really nasty. You put in an 8 by 8 cell, it's not too cold, not too hot. You get enough food. You can, you can go to the bathroom. But that's it. No television, no inmates, no reading matter. You just get to sit there in a cell, eight by eight for a month. You think if somebody just trotted you off into a cell for a month, do you think you'd find it enjoyable? Inmates generally find that's the worst form of punishment. And they'll do almost anything not to have that happen. Buddhist monks will go into a cell for not a month, but a year, two years, five years, ten years. Similar cell. I mean, still, it's called a monastic cell. It's called a prison cell. A cell is a cell. But a Buddhist monk or nun or Christians or Hindu or Taoist, having cultivated the mind, they find such solitude with their training in which while in solitude they continue to cultivate their mind. Many have described it in the words similar to a river of gold. Samyaksuka, pursuit of authentic well-being. There's something even deeper than that. Deeper than psychological well-being, where you're no longer reliant upon, no longer dependent upon, or addicted to stimulation, or even doing things to make you happy. You can be 
separate it from all stimulation and even simplify your life temporarily into a state of profound not doing and you may tap into a sense of well-being that is greater than anything you've experienced before. That's not hypothetical. That's empirical. It's a known fact. But is there anything deeper than that? And I find this in Hinduism, in Christianity, in Buddhism. My studies at Stanford, where I did my doctorate, was in comparative religion, specifically compar comparative contemplative practice, by looking into different traditions, looking for common ground where it might be you know, relevant. And this sequence of ethics and then cultivating the mind and then going deeper than that to a type of well-being that arises from wisdom, from knowing in a very deep way the nature of reality, knowing who we are in a very deep way. And that is said to be the deepest form of well-being. It's beyond psychological well-being, it's existential knowing, a type of knowing itself that gives rise to a sense of well-being. It's rooted in reality itself. This is not a religious thing and not philosophical, not scientific. That is, it's not one or the other. I would say, just true. That's not promoting any religion or any philosophy. It's just something has been found to be true. It's actually very good news. So the pursuit of well-being, in my interpretation of Thomas Jefferson's words, that we have the right, whether granted by the government, granted by the God, that's your call, but the right to pursue prosperity, we should have that right. Maybe we won't get it. It depends on many factors beyond our control. But we should have the right to try. We shouldn't be slaves. We shouldn't be indentured servants. We should have the right to try to be healthy. Physically, psychologically, we should have a right to pursue that. Well, maybe we won't succeed. Not everybody does. But we should have that right to have sufficient insurance, health insurance, medical care when we need it. That should be a right. It's part of our Constitution, at least part of the Declaration of Independence. And then finally, this deepest one, well-being. Well-being. I've unpacked this a little bit. This is the flip side of the Four Noble Truths, which is about suffering, identifying full bandwidth of suffering, identifying what truly makes us suffer. As there are two types of happiness, and again, nothing that I'm saying here is just based on authority or kind of some religious belief. Everything I'm saying here, you should be able to test with your own experience. If it's false, you should know it's false. So it seems quite clear to me, because I know it to be true from my experience, that I've experienced many types of pleasure that depend on things beyond my control. Spouse, family, job, home, health, and so forth. I can't control my health. I can simply try to influence it. So hedonia. I mean, we all have experience. Even if you're a five-year-old, you've had experience of hedonia. But I think you probably, all of you, have experienced, regardless of your worldviews, religious, not religious, and so on, I think you've all experienced eudaimonia. You may or may not have known the term, but I can just ask you. I won't ask for a raise of hands, but just allow you to reflect to yourself. Have you ever simply sat quietly, maybe out in nature or in a room or simply at some occasion, without anything pleasant, pleasant music, pleasant anything happening to you, simply sensed or experienced a sense of well-being or peace or inner, inner calm, inner satisfaction? That's eudaimonia. And the mind, the heart and mind can be cultivated such that that can be more and more sustained, even in times of adversity. I've, I've had, in this lifetime, I've experienced, I think, tremendous good fortune in various ways. And one of those is I've lived with very different people, a wide variety of people. I studied physics at Amherst, met brilliant people, Nobel laureates in physics and biology and so forth. But I've also lived 14 years with Tibetans. I've lived in the Tibetan refugee community for four years, about 45 years ago. And I've met people quite a number of them, who have gone through tremendous adversity, including one person I translated for on a couple of occasions who spent 35 years in a concentration camp. He was a Tibetan, incarcerated by the Chinese Communist government for pretty much nothing, except for, you know, he wanted Tibet to be free. 35 years in a concentration camp, that was torture, starvation, and heavy labor. It was not a happy time. In fact, when he described me in some gra graphic detail what he'd gone through, it was unspeakably horrific. But he made it through, and what I found remarkable, because this was a very ordinary monk. He wasn't a great yogi or a great scholar, nothing great. He was simply an ordinary monk. His name was Pavlin Gatso, by the way. He wrote a book, I think it might, Autobiography of a Monk, something like that. Pavlin Gatso. But in any case, he, when he came out, because I translated for him, of course, after he had been freed, he came out with no hatred, no resentment, a passionate advocate of human rights. But I never saw a glimmer of any hatred or resentment 
towards the people who incarcerated him for no good cause for 35 years. But beyond that, I've also known something quite extraordinary Tibetan lamas or teachers, contemplatives. I've been doing this for about 46 years now. I met a lot of people. And two of them spring to mind. One was in a, in a concentration camp for 20 years, another one for 18 years. Now, these were really contemplatives. These were monks. They are monks. One of them is still living. The other one just passed away last year. Both of them are my teachers. And they turned concentration camp experience, that starvation, torture, and heavy, heavy labor for 18 years, 20 years, they turned that into their own spiritual practice. They learned how to meditate in a concentration camp. They transformed that into a meditation retreat. And one of them said, I experience greater well-being inside the concentration camp than most people experience outside. Now, that's power to the people. That's not a power that he got from the concentration camp or from Tibet or from something outside. He transformed where not only was he in a neutral environment, he was in a terrible environment, but he managed to overcome that. And it's not just Buddhists who do this. There's other people you'll find them throughout history that transform even the worst of adversity into something that they experience as well-being. So there's stimulus-driven well-being that you can say thank you to the world, your girlfriend, boyfriend, the environment, your job, your parents, and so forth. And then there's gidomania, or authentic well-being that you bring to the world, and you've cultivated that. So now let's return to the Four Noble Truths. Suffering. We experience physical suffering, mental suffering. I'll give an easy example for which I know the answer. If you have a choice, once again, you've got two choices. You can either be in spectacularly good health, and really attractive too, right? But miserable. I mean, suicidally depressed. But man, you look good. You look really hot. And you're in great health physically. But you're just as depressed as hell. That's, that's door number one. The other one is, you're not good looking at all. You're really ordinary. But you're really, really happy. You really have a sense of well-being. Just wherever you go, you bring a sense of well-being with you. But you don't look that good. You're kind of like pot-bellied, maybe old, maybe not so attractive. But you're just so, have a sense of well-being. So what are you going to be? You'd like to be drop-dead gorgeous, or really hot, but miserable? Or you like to look really ordinary, like a dish rag? But really, really happy. It's not a religious question. It's a common sense question. And anybody who has common sense knows the right answer. And that's because we care about one more than the other. We'd like to have both. Of course, it'd be nice to be healthy and attractive and to be really happy. But if it came down to it, nobody in right mind would say, let me look good anyway. Even if I'm so anxious and depressed, I'm going to blow my brains out. But at least I'll look good just before I, I pull the trigger. That'd be crazy. So, as there are two types of happiness, there's physical pleasure, there's psychological pleasure. There are two types of suffering, physical suffering, mental suffering. Between the two, we care more about mental suffering than we do about physical suffering. More about mental well-being than we do about physical pleasure. Anybody in his right mind does. It's just sensible. But I spoke of authentic well-being. Authentic well-being. Eudaimonia, I think it's the best translation. Samyaksuka, I think it's the best translation. Authentic well-being. You know what it is now. That you bring to the world. That is actually yours. It's not something you acquire and then lose. It's something you brought to the world so nobody can take it away from you. Consider this. Maybe there are two types of suffering. See if you relate to it. I'm thinking especially mental suffering because that's the kind we care most about. Mental suffering. Mental depression, anxiety, malaise, a sense of maybe low self-esteem, a sense of restlessness, of boredom, anxiety, a fundamental discontent. All kinds. Anguish, grief, misery. We have a lot of words for mental suffering. It's a very big bandwidth. Many, many words, right? From malaise to anguish. That's a pretty big bandwidth, right? And so there's one type of mental suffering that's in response to something happening to us that sucks. And yeah, I don't need to give any examples. But something happens to you and you're really miserable as a result or unhappy or depressed or frustrated or disappointed. And that's stimulus-driven unhappiness. And that's the first noble truth. That's an aspect of the first noble truth. Something rotten happened to you and you don't feel good as a result. Now, if you ask... You know, if somebody sees, oh, you're feeling quite, you're looking quite despondent, you're looking really down, what's up? What's up? Why are you, why are you unhappy? 
you'll probably hear the answer, well, my girlfriend just broke up for me, or I just lost my job, or I got a really terrible grade on this exam, or I'm having real problems with my parents, or my health is really, I just got a diagnosis, it looks like I've got something really serious wrong with me. Something rotten happened to you. And the, in terms of the second noble truth, as far as you're concerned, why are you unhappy? Well, my boyfriend just broke up with me. Or this or that, and you point to something else, right? Don't we do that? Why are you unhappy? Th well, this makes me so unhappy. You make me so upset. I'm so disappointed because this happened. The political situation went this way and not that way. That really bums me out, all right? And so in a way, in our own prognosis here, why are you unhappy? We point the finger outwards and say, this is why I'm not happy. And can you see the way that you might be free? Well, yeah, if the political situation changes, or my boyfriend and girlfriend come back to me, or I do better on the basic exam, you know, fill in the blanks, and then you can figure out if there's some strategy to get what you want. So by and large, when we think about being unhappy, my sense, maybe I'm wrong, you decide. We're unhappy because something made us unhappy, something triggered. But I've given this some thought, because I care about unhappiness, like we all do. And I've asked this because I do a lot of public lecturing all over the world. And I've asked this question in many, many contexts, university contexts and so forth and so on. Could anything, here's the question, try it on for science. Is it possible for anything to happen in the world, anything at all, in the world out there, that couldn't possibly make somebody unhappy? Is there anything that that having happened, there's no way that that couldn't trigger unhappiness in someone? I've asked that question many times, and nobody's ever been able to give me an instance of anything that couldn't make somebody unhappy. So if you come up with it, you have your TAs. You can raise that in your TA section. But not anything. Which means, in principle, if this is true, anything could make you unhappy. Everything could make you unhappy. And our control individually or collectively over what happens to us in terms of the surrounding environment, planet Earth, etc., is marginal. In other words, we're just simply prey. Extremely vulnerable to anything that makes us unhappy. But I just mentioned two people who were in concentration camp for 18 years, and while they're in concentration camp, they experience a high level of well-being. What's up with that? When it comes to the three strategies for finding pleasure, you remember? Wealth, power, prestige. This should be a really easy question. Can you think of anybody who's fabulously wealthy but miserable? Easy, huh? Anybody who's very, very famous but suicidal? Easy. Anybody who's very powerful but miserable? Easy. How about all three? Why not? In other words, there's no guarantee even if you succeed in becoming fabulously wealthy, incredibly powerful, and incredibly, extraordinarily famous, prestigious, high status. There's no guarantee at all that you even be happy. You would be really miserable. And yet you succeeded in everything you wanted to do. And then you put a bullet in your head. Now that's not a hypothetical. This has happened so many times. The data are in. What's up with that? How could you be surrounded by luxury and all the things you ever hoped for and still be unhappy? Because it's true. If you don't have it, you may be unhappy for sure. But if you do get all that stuff, you win on all three levels. Wealth, power, prestige. You could still be miserable. Really miserable. This raises, to my mind, another type of unhappiness. Authentic unhappiness. And this is the type of sense of discontent. I think it's the best word. Discontent, a restlessness, almost an existential dissatisfaction a feeling of wanting something more that's not a result of something bad happening to you. It's the first noble truth. When we cut deep, everybody feels unhappy. At least most people do. They get ill, relationships break up, they lose financial security and so forth and so on. But when everything's fine, or everything could be fantastic externally, and you still feel discontent, dissatisfied, maybe depressed, feeling ill at ease, that's interesting. The other one's not so interesting. Get a new boyfriend, get a new girlfriend, it'll get over it, get over it, you know, time heals all wounds. But when there's no wound, 
and you're still feeling discontent. That's interesting. What's the cause of that? When there's nothing happening to you, you can point the finger in any direction, and maybe all the stuff around you, even a loving spouse, happy family, and so forth, and you're still unhappy. What's the cause of that? In our society, as I've been living here for a while, if you experience that type of discontent or depression, somebody is probably going to tell you, go to a shrink. And the shrink will listen to you about everything in your life may be really fine. A really good partner or a family, spouse, financial, and everything's fine, and you're still unhappy. What do you think the shrink would tell you? What do you think the shrink would prescribe for you? Any guesses? Xanax might be a good idea. That's for general anxiety disorder. Or we have now dozens of antidepressants. There's something wrong with you. Why don't we shoot the messenger? Why don't we stifle the symptom? Because you shouldn't be having that symptom. You should be happy. You should be content. You should be just enjoying your life because everything around you is going well. They're probably going to prescribe a drug for you that's going to suppress, they like to say manage, what they mean is suppress the symptom. They're going to send you into a stupor. And from the Buddhist perspective, you say, oh, but that's just where it got interesting. And then they shoot the messenger. Because this is a type of unhappiness. That if you can tackle that one, meet that one face on, and recognize what's the source of this, you're in pure gold. Now I have a real chance for real transformation. Finding well-being on a deep level. If you tap into the causes of authentic unhappiness, identify them, and expunge them. In so doing, you're tapping into genuine welcome. That's the deal. Everything I'm saying here, just see whether it's true or not. Maybe I'm just full of nonsense. But that's for you to decide. But we are tapping into the real gist of what it calls in the Buddhist tradition the Four Noble Truths. So I said this was going to be about education and the pursuit of happiness. I've covered the pursuit of happiness. Education. You're right in the midst of it, I think. Right? Most of you are undergraduates. You're right, you're right midstream, right? Not just beginning, not just about the end, probably. You're somewhere in between. Do you ever pause to ask, what on earth is this for? Somebody's paying a lot of money for this. Either you're going into severe debt, or your parents are paying for it, or I got through all the scholarships. I was really fortunate. I came out debt-free, and that was just very fortunate. I feel very grateful. But what's it for? What's education for? Because here you are, very fortunate, of course. I'm very glad for you. It's a fine university. I taught here for four years. Very fine university. But what's it for? Prosperity. It's hard nowadays. If all you have is a high school education, or maybe not even that. In our country, no college at all. Not impossible. Steve Jobs never made it through college, and so forth. But by and large, they're exceptional. And if you have only a high school, or you're not even that, it's tough to prosper in this world. Right? It's just true. So what's the point of an education with prosperity? You'll probably do better if you have a college education. And some types of majors are probably going to help you more for prosperity than others. If you get an education, but now let's go deeper. This is UCSB, fine university, many Nobel laureates here, secular education. The chances when you, if you graduate from here of being able to pursue prosperity more effectively than with no college education probably will help you. That's good. Will it help you thrive? Having a college education, will that help you thrive? What you're learning here, the skills, the abilities, the knowledge you're acquiring here, will that help you to thrive? Because after all, I think we agreed it's more important to thrive than be prosperous. If you're prosperous but you're not thriving, who cares? You don't. So the education you're getting is helping you thrive. Are you learning about how to maintain good health? Good. I'm sure the knowledge is here. But how about psychological health? Are you learning here? I'm not criticizing anything. It's a simple question. We have very, very fine psychology department here. Very fine neuroscience department program. That's all about the study of mind, right? Are you learning how to develop, cultivate mental health? Does that come up? If it's not, why not? Isn't that what we care about most? More, even more than prosperity. Even more than physical health, don't we care actually more about our mental well-being? And doesn't that come in part from mental health? It's hard to be thriving psychologically if you're suffering from ADHD, post-traumatic stress disorder, general anxiety disorder, insomnia, or depression. That's just a short list. It's not easy. 
It's not easy. And these psychological problems I just cited, just a list of five, they're endemic and they're growing. The rate of depression since I was born, 1950, has gone up 10 times. We've learned so much more about the mind and the brain. We have so many more drugs and depression's going through the ceiling. And it's going to be, just in a matter of years, the most debilitating disease on the planet is depression. So humanity to get more and more educated. Prosperity, in many respects, some respects, is getting better. And so is mental disease. Something wrong. Something missing, perhaps. But not entirely. You have a very good athletics program here. You want to learn about diet and so forth. You can learn it. And of course, you have healthcare here. You have hospitals. We have excellent healthcare program here in, or facilities here in Santa Barbara. It's a wonderful community. But let's go to well-being. Well-being. Education and well-being. We're going deep now, right? Well-being. We learn in the modern, edu- modern education system, including universities, graduate work, and so forth. We learn about how to cultivate a way of life that is truly ethical, that is truly nonviolent and benevolent. Everybody knows it's a good idea, but how do you do it? That's level one, right? Foundational, most primitive, most elementary. Do we learn in our modern education system how to cultivate a sense of well-being that comes from the mind, not through interrelationship, through environment, people, and so forth, but you can sit quietly in a room and really flourish? Are there courses in that? And if not, why not? You don't have to believe something. You don't have to believe in God or karma or anything else. I mean, just cultivate your mind. And then the deepest one... A sense of well-being that arises by, by knowing reality as it is. What aspects of reality? So, I've been fortunate to have a lot of Western education. Undergraduate at Amherst College, it's marvelous. Studied physics, philosophy of science, mathematics, Sanskrit. And then six years of graduate work at Stanford. I truly feel deeply grateful, especially since I got it all for free. But really, I, I, I cherish the education I got in these two fine institutions. And I enjoyed the four four years I taught here. I found it very enriching. So I care a lot about education. I continue to try to educate myself. That's kind of the idea. You keep on cultivating until you're dead. Not yet for me. What's education for? Prosperity? Thriving? Well-being? Who's who's attending to the well-being part? Where does that come up? I've had a lot of interest for quite a number of years now in the history of our own civilization here. And science. I was trained in physics as an undergraduate a long time ago, trained in biology, have a great admiration for science. I've been involved in a number of scientific research projects, co-written a number of scientific papers published in peer-reviewed journals on scientific studies of meditation and so forth. So I appreciate, I think I understand, science to some extent have a great admiration for it. So before we go back to Buddhism and then Buddhist education and seeing where this goes to monasticism, very briefly, the history of education, especially since the rise of modernity, Galileo, Descartes, scientific revolution, the so-called enlightenment in philosophy in, in Europe, European civilization, but specifically in science, it's very significant that the first great scientist, some people, including Einstein, call him the father of modern science, was Galileo. Very interesting guy. I've studied him quite a bit. Very interesting guy. As a youth, he was trained as a contemplative. He's a very devout Christian. And as a youth, he was trained in a contemplative monastery not too far from Florence, only about half an hour, 45 minutes by car. He loved it. He was trained as a contemplative, sitting in a cell and engaging in Christian contemplation. He loved it. He wanted to stay. Galileo just wanted to become a Christian monk, become a contemplative for the rest of his life. There was a problem. Some of you might resonate with it. His dad wouldn't pay for it. Somebody had to pay for it. His dad said, nah, get a job. Become a doctor. So he had to leave the monastery, went off to the University of Pisa, started studying medicine, hated it. But he found he had a knack for another discipline that was called mathematics. So he got his degree in mathematics. And the rest is history. As a very devout Christian, he turned his yearning to know reality. I'll put it very specifically, because he said it. He was a Christian, a very devout Christian, a contemporary. And he wanted to know the mind of God as a Christian. Noble, noble aspiration. He wanted to know the highest truth. So he had this deep spiritual, contemplative, mystical aspiration to know the mind of God, but his dad wouldn't pay for it, right? So he had to go to university. He went to mathematics. 
And he got really interested. He said, well, I can't stay in the monastery and try to fathom the mind of God by going within, so I'm going to, I, I'm going to go without, direct my attention outwards to the stars, the planets, the sun and the moon, to terrestrial phenomena like dropping balls off the Tower of Pisa. His strategy was that I want to understand the mind of the Creator indirectly by understanding the creation, understand the clock, have insight into the clockmaker's mind. So for him, science was actually a very deeply Christian endeavor. To be able to view reality from God's own perspective. It's called the God's eye view. Nowadays it's called an objective view of reality. But most important here, that when I even mention him in this intro to Buddhism course, is that he directed his attention outwards. Outwards. To the physical, the objective, and the quantifiable. He discovered the craters on the moon, the moons around Jupiter, sunspots, phases of Venus. He discovered that a heavy ball falls no faster than a light ball dropped off the power of Pisa. He found that balls rolling down a ramp accelerate. They don't go at constant velocity. These are all revolutionary insights that was contrary to mainstream intelligentsia, mainstream academia. So look out for mainstream academia. They're wrong again and again and again, including right now. They just don't know where. But he started the, the scientific revolution by looking outwards. 1608, 1609 was when he published The Starry Messenger. His observations of what he found, what he discovered, first, first person in history, made one discovery after another by observing outwardly with great precision, telescope and so forth. What I find remarkable is, from the beginnings of modern science in the late 16th century, it was 300 years before the science of the mind even began. Philosophers were thinking about it. Theologians would ponder the soul. But scientists overlooked the scientific study of the mind for 300 years, always focusing on the objective, the physical, the quantifiable. Only in the late 19th century so did scientists like the American pioneer of psychology William James, the German Wilhelm Wundt, Titchener at Cornell University, only then did scientists or philosophers think about, how about starting an experimental science of the mind? You know, where well-being comes from, the kind that really counts. A scientific study of the mind. It's amazing they overlooked that for 300 years. They got so fixated on the objective, physical, quantifiable. They never got around to actually scientifically probing into the mind that was exploring the nature of the external world. It's very strange, to my mind, very strange. William James, who's one of my intellectual heroes, said, look, we should treat the mind like anything else. If you want to understand it, look at it. That's how Galileo came up with proof that the Earth goes around the sun and not vice versa. Copernicus gave a good possibility, but never proved anything. Galileo proved it. Darwin observed carefully for 2,500 years biological organisms around the world. And he came up with a brilliant theory based on his close observations. The modern rise of quantum mechanics, relativity theory, based on very precise observations. And then another great revolution in physics. The science of the mind abandoned that principle of observing that which you're trying to understand. They abandoned it completely to see whether it's true. Check out psychology department here. I'm not criticizing to see whether this is a valid observation. After trying introspection for a couple of decades, late 19th century, and doing it very poorly, basically the scientists had to have other people look at their minds. This would be like Galileo hiring somebody off the road to look at the stars. I mean, it's crazy. But that's what they did. From about 1910, so roughly the last 100 years, academic psychology, mainstream psychology, has abandoned introspection, abandoned any direct observation of mental states and, and processes, states of consciousness and so forth, and focused overwhelmingly on the objective, physical, and quantifiable. Behavior, behavior of a person, guinea pig, an atom, behavior is behavior. And brain states. Brain states. Objective, physical, quantifiable. They don't look at the mind. It's odd. It's the only branch of science that refuses to carefully observe that which they, th they say they're trying to understand. They approach it only indirectly by behavioral expressions of what's going on in your mind, the neurocorrelates of what's going on in your mind, but not looking at the mind. So what's the relationship between the mind and the body? The mind-body problem. It's safe to say, and I think it's utterly fair to say, and accurate to say, there's been no progress for the last hundred years. They're not looking at it. And now, because I read the press a lot, the mind and brain, mind and brain, the two words are used interchangeably, as if they're the same thing. 
That is complete nonsense. Your mind is the same thing as a brain. Your thought is the same thing as a neuron. It's crazy talk. Let's get on to before the time is out. That's where we are. We've become an academic system, a whole system of education, that's focused almost entirely outwards. Physical health, fantastic. Athletic program here, outstanding. Knowledge of all fields of knowledge pertaining to the external world, first rate. You have a course on eudaimonia, a course on cultivating mental well-being, a course on cultivating ethics. I'm not talking religious ethics, just being ethical, because civilization can't do without it. We've overlooked these. We've overlooked the inner. We've become a civilization that's looking outwards, like a deer staring into the headlights and overlooking the fact that there's something called the inner life that is actually the source of suffering and the source of happiness. It's, we're an anomaly. We're an anomaly, a very strange anomaly. And we're now dominating the entire planet. I've lived in India for six years. Academia is dominated by the West. I've been to China, to Tibet four times, dominated by the West. I've lived all over the place. We are, Eurocentric civilization is now pretty much pervasive. Not so 1,500 years ago. So now we step into for the last 10 minutes or so. Another system of education. And I can tell you when I first learned about it, I was thrilled. And your professor for this course has written a very, very interesting paper. She thought you wouldn't be interested. But if you're interested in anything I've just said, you should be interested in her paper. And you can ask her for it. But she's very modest. She's very humble. She's not going to try to push it. But she wrote an outstanding paper on system of education in Buddhist universities 1,500 years ago. Completely. I mean, not completely. In very prof profound and important ways, very different from the education you're getting here. Education that I got at Amherst, that I got at UC San Diego when I was there when I was 20, 18, 19, 20. Very different. You know that by the time you graduate, you will have forgotten 90% of what you've learned. Right? Anybody doubt that? That is not true in Buddhist monastic education. I was a monk for 14 years. And I got years of formal monastic education. You're responsible for everything you learn. It's, qual it's accumulative. Because the whole idea is you, you integrate what you learned earlier with later and later and later, and you integrate it into one thoroughly integrated whole, rather than getting a whole bunch of pellets of knowledge thrown at you, most of which bounce off by the time the class is over. So there was a structure, like, it's like a mosaic, like a mandala, of the educational system in classic India. It wasn't just Buddhist. It had a structure to it. It had a center, and it had like a lotus that has a center and four petals. So I'll give you a brief introduction. Time is running out. But this makes me salivate. Because I love education. I continue to educate myself, and I do a lot of teaching myself. Sometimes in academia, usually not. There were five branches of knowledge. It's called vidya, which means knowledge, knowing. The word science means, comes from scientia, which means knowing, knowledge. So the five branches of knowledge, five branches of science in classical India. And there was one that was in the center. And then four that are peripheral, secondary. The one in the center, I'll just give the Tibetan here. I know Tibetan much better than Sanskrit. It's called, <laughs> really by an obvious name, it's called Nangrikpa, inner knowledge. This is the core of an education system altogether, start to finish. The most important knowledge you can have is inner knowledge, and that's knowledge about your mind. And in terms of mind, what you care most about is are you happy or are you miserable? Are you content or discontent? Are you ill at ease or do you feel serenity? Do you feel your life is meaningful or bereft of meaning? These are mental issues. What's the true source of happiness? People can be surrounded by pleasure and be miserable, and other people can be surrounded with nothing and be happy, or even be surrounded by tremendous adversity and still be happy. And some people can be miserable in all of those circumstances. In terrible circumstances, they can be miserable, of course. They can be miserable in neutral circumstances. They can be miserable in the lap of luxury. So this all points to a simple fact. It's not a religious fact. It's just, see whether it's true, that for our happiness and our, our misery, the primary factor is our minds. It's not other people. It's not even our physical health. It's not the environment, it's not our social status, our wealth, our prestige, or power. It's not where we live, it's the mind. Pardon me, it's the mind, stupid. You know, it's been obvious for 3,000 years. But we overlook that, because it's so much easier to blame other people or say other people make me happy. Because that's what we're looking outwards, we see out, out, out. What's outside making me happy, what's outside making me miserable. Inner knowledge, that's the core 
of the whole education system from start to finish. I received years of training in that system, the Tibetan version 2,000 years later, or 1,500 years later, in the mountains up in northern India. I received this education. I got inside of it. All the education was run in Tibetan. Happily, I got fluent quickly. So I know it from the inside. It was very satisfying in many ways. Inner knowledge is the most important one. What is the nature of the mind? What are the inner causes of well-being? What are the inner causes of suffering? What's the role of mind in nature? How does it relate to the body? And does the mind have multiple dimensions? Is there anything beyond the human psyche? Is there something deeper than that, deeper than that? Exploring the mind on multiple dimensions. This is the core of all Buddhist education from start to finish, from the Buddha himself through classical India, through Tibet, to the present day, the most important topic to understand before you die is your mind. What does happen at death? It would be good to know before you die and not be surprised and not find yourself ill-prepared. I've been reading a book by a very, very distinguished physicist. He and I are going to have a dialogue up in San Francisco in a couple of weeks. He's a very hardcore materialist. I think he finds great solace in his materialism, because he's totally confident that death means termination. You can just look at it. This is a given. You don't have to strive for it. You don't have to accomplish anything. All you have to do is stop breathing, and all your problems are finished. All your worries, your concerns, your unhappiness, discontent, everything you've ever done lights out, rest in peace, sweet, silent oblivion forever. It's a happy. What if it's not true? To think that we know enough about the mind scientifically to prove that is complete hogwash. Scientists don't know what causes consciousness. They don't have a clue. And if you don't know the necessary and sufficient causes that give rise to consciousness, you have no idea what happens to a death. You can pretend you do, but you don't. If you don't know what causes it, you don't know what determines. If you think it's simply a function of brain, good. Prove it. Nobody has. It would be so much easier if all our problems ended there it would be a great source of comfort. If it doesn't, everything's different. To approach that with an open mind is not easy. But it would be good if everybody here, when we face death, we're not surprised. Because something's going to happen. Something's true. And it has nothing to do with preference. Something's true. We're all going to find out what that is sooner or later. So the inner knowledge was central. Before you die, learn what this mind is. It's the very core of our being here, our mental experience. And then there are the derivative ones. Knowledge, that's inner knowledge first, right? But we're wrapping up now. Knowledge of healing. Knowledge of healing. Indian Ayurvedic medicine eventually evolved into traditional Tibetan medicine. It's very sophisticated. I lived with the Dalai Lama's physician for more than a year. I studied Tibetan medicine, translated two books on it. It's not primitive. It's very different. It's not primitive. And frankly, I can say I would have died without it. I, was, I had my third case of hepatitis when I was 24. I almost killed me. That medicine bought me. I'm very grateful. Knowledge of healing. Healing animals, healing human beings, physical illness, psychological illness. It's all about healing. That's clear. It's medicine. Derivative, though, not primary. Remember, that's thriving. Inner knowledge is about well-being. Knowledge of healing is about thriving. Remember? Declaration of Independence. So that's a derivative one. Really important, but it's derivative. Knowledge of sound. Shabdavidya. Knowledge of sound is interesting. But this is language. Above all, it's language. Implicitly includes music. Sound. But one of the salient features, and this is known throughout cultures, cultures all over the planet, is one of the very distinctive features of being a human being is we can talk. We can pass on knowledge for 5,000 years. We can listen. We can learn from our parents, from people we've never met. No other species does that. It sets us way, way, way above our nearest neighbors of chimpanzees, gorillas, and so forth. Our ability of language. What is the nature of language? Fathoming that. Big deal. That's number three. Number four is the knowledge of logic. Clear thinking. Rational thinking. Logic, reason, you, knowing how to use your intelligence in a complete, clear and compelling way 
to know how to analyze, to investigate, to think clearly, to analyze deeply. And that goes qualitatively, and that's called logic. And it goes quantitatively, and that's called mathematics. That's derivative, but really important. Don't be stupid. We can learn how to be less and less stupid. We can cultivate our qualities of reasoning, of logic, of astute analysis. Four out of five. And the fifth one, very broad, it's called knowledge of making stuff. Zohar making just making stuff. That's all of technology. Now, they didn't have much in India, and they had probably less in Tibet. They had very little technology. They seem to be quite content having none. Can you imagine you know, not even having a single cell phone? Now everybody got cell phone, even in Tibet, they're all over the place. But technology in Buddhist cultures was very, very, very low. But they had enough. They seemed quite sufficient. I've lived with Tibetans for 14 years. I've been to Tibet four times. Prior to their violent clash with modernity by way of the Chinese Communist government, it was a technologically, drastically undeveloped, I mean, hilariously undeveloped country. But so content. I've known thousands of Tibetans. So content. They had their inner knowledge, and that kept the whole civilization together. But they didn't denigrate the knowledge of making stuff, like bridges, and roads, all types of technology. Tibetans love technology. If you go hang out with Tibetans nowadays, they've all got their cell phones, their laptops. They love technology. Why not? It's very cool technology. But it's also art. It's interesting. But making statues, paintings, sculpture, and so forth, that's also knowledge of making stuff. So they didn't put technology and art in two different categories. Art should be useful, have a purpose and a meaning, and technology should be artistic. Beautiful. Why not? knowledge of making stuff. So those four are the derivative of healing, knowledge of language, of sound, knowledge of reasoning, logic, clear thinking, and knowledge of making stuff. All of those are very useful for hedonia, for thriving, for prosperity. But it's the inner knowledge that gives rise to wealth. And that was central. So the time is up. I'll end on one note. It looks to me like modern education has lost its heart. Because where is the inner? Where is the science of well-being? But it's in our own culture. We don't have to become Buddhist or Hindu or we don't have to follow religion. It's in our own culture. And that's what men and women in ancient India and today, that's why they become monks or nuns. Their most meaningful motivation was to focus so pointedly on the most important, well-being and inner knowledge. And that's what Professor Wallace will talk about in a week. Have a good day. Good night.